Welcome to Declare, the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Ohio. Each episode, LPO Communications Director Aaron Keith Harris talks to the most interesting people promoting liberty in Ohio and around the world. You can send questions and comments to news at lpo.org. I am Aaron Keith Harris, and my guest today is Michael Keenan, president of the Seasteading Institute. Um, I first became aware of this group a few weeks ago. Uh, maybe it's been a couple of months or more at this point. Um, several people forwarded me a Yahoo story, I think, about um, uh, a person who had donated some money to this institute and um, they knew that I, you know, they know I'm a libertarian and thought I'd be interested in it. And I'd heard kind of this concept before, and um, but I wanted to learn more about it. And I think that um, uh, it's a really interesting subject. So, Michael, tell me, uh, tell me what the Seasteading Institute is and does. Well, first I'll tell you about the problem we're trying to solve, and that is that governments everywhere are local monopolies. They exist in this global system of oligopolies, or, or basically a, a system where there are these large monolithic entities that uh, barely compete with each other. And uh, we see this as the, the problem behind all the, the rest of the problems we, we find with government. Uh, people disagree over what the problems with government are, they want government to be doing different things, but no one is very satisfied. Congress approval rate is about 14% right now. So, if governments could be more competitive, uh, then perhaps it would be better. And the problem is that uh, to start a new government, to enter that market, so to speak, is uh, almost impossible. It's really expensive with a revolution or a, uh, an election, at least, um, or war. Uh, and switching between governments is also extremely expensive. People could do it. You can, you can move from a country and leave your family and your friends and your job and your language and your culture and fight through immigration barriers. Uh, if you could reduce those two costs, you would increase competition between governments and solve, uh, to some extent, the problems caused by governments. But the problem is there's nowhere you can create new governments. Uh, the, the land is all taken. So we thought, build new land. The Seasteading Institute is a non-profit organization dedicated to building new countries, new societies, in international waters where people will be able to experiment with new social and political systems. We expect this to create a startup sector for governments, uh, somewhere we can bring the, the energy and innovation of entrepreneurship to, to government, uh, seeing government as an industry. And so this should create a diverse set of governments, the kind of diversity you see in any other industry. Right now we impose the same service upon millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in, in America, and uh, we would never put up with that in any other industry. Uh, we don't all drive the same car or wear the same shoes or eat the same ice cream. Uh, but with governments, we, we, we all got the same thing. And it's what could be more personal and important than the, the society we live under. We all have these strong opinions about it, uh, but we argue about it. In some cases, we argue about the same things for centuries. Uh, but uh, instead of arguing about it, we could go out there and demonstrate it. If only there were a space uh, to enter this market for governments. So that is what these things are doing. Okay, um, and uh, from the name of the institute, I would think that seasteading comes from the concept of of homesteading, and uh, I'll let you kind of explain kind of what that is. And um, also, uh, when you're talking, I thought of a um, concept. I'm not an expert on it, but I, I got a political science degree way back when. And one of the things they talked about in, like, the history of Europe was this concept of interstices, which in Europe there were a lot of competing governments as far as a, you know, a little king here, a duke here, maybe the Catholic Church had a little bit here, but there were kind of these gaps where nobody could really uh, enforce government control. I think the history of Ireland with the um the English trying to invade and control Ireland, they were able to, I think, take over a significant part around Dublin, which they called the Pale. But beyond the Pale, there were no real governments to kind of take over. And so their authority never really extended out there. So there were 
in the history of Europe, and I'm sure other places around the world, there were these little gaps where freedom flourished and uh, alternative, you know, governing strategies or arrangements were there. But eventually, you know, I think the governments, you know, became more efficient and uh, we have what we have now. So to talk about maybe a little bit of that history and philosophy behind it, as well as the concept of, of homesteading versus seasteading. Well, homesteading is to, uh, to settle, particularly on the, on the frontier. And so it's a name very deliberately chosen because we see international waters as the next frontier. Perhaps not the last frontier, uh, there's, there's always space, but it is the next one, uh, the land's always already being taken. And then the, the history of, of, uh, of this idea, well, again, actually, there have been many places where governments have not been uh, well fed up, where, where people can move. Most especially, the example I have to is the people traveling west um, in America um, in the last few centuries. If you didn't like the government uh, that you lived under, you would, would travel west and um, you would homestead the frontier. And um, once people actually reach, reach the west coast, then you see an expansion in government, uh, expansion in the size of the government. And I don't think that's a coincidence. But certainly there are many examples of, of different systems uh, around the world uh, having different results. Um, East and West Germany, North and South Korea, Hong Kong, and rest of China. Uh, this shows that different systems uh, can have enormous effects on the, the, the results of the society uh, that they're, they're imposed upon. And, and we feel at the Seasteading Institute that much more is possible than what uh, the results we get with uh, any of the societies, including Hong Kong, for example, or South Korea, with uh, societies that do fairly well in many ways. We would like to see much more experimentation. Uh, and, and just much more competition, because of course, that will lead to better results. Uh, you need not be a subject of your country, but rather a consumer. And if you're unhappy, switch. Right. Um, it's interesting, you talked about, you know, moving west and stuff. I just rewatched, uh, this summer, uh, the, uh, DVD set, Three Seasons of Deadwood, uh, the HBO show, and that was a constant kind of, actually it was kind of the main theme of the whole show, was these people had, you know, various people for various reasons had found their way out there and were trying to uh, experiment with different ways of arranging society. Um, and it's it's really interesting because, you know, they were always worried that uh, the territorial government would, you know, bring them into the state of South Dakota and all this. So there's lots of those issues talked about in that show. So for for people to get a sense of that, that's a good show to go back to. Um, let's first talk, uh, let's get to know you a little bit and then a kind of, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of how the Seasteading Institute is trying to do what it's trying to do. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in these issues? Um, and how did you end up, uh, you know, where are you from and how'd you end up, uh, where you are now with the, the Seasteading Institute? Well, I was, I'm a New Zealander and I've, uh, Lived in various parts of the world, Scotland, England, Taiwan, Canada, um, as a programmer and tech entrepreneur. And I was interested in seasteading uh, from about 2005, seeing it on the internet, uh, being discussed, especially by Padre Friedman, who um, has been the biggest promoter of seasteading, um, I guess, ever. Uh, he's the grandson of Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist. And uh, he worked at Google until 2008, when Peter Thiel, uh, founded the, well, helped found the, the Seasteading Institute with a grant of $500,000. Uh, Peter Thiel is the founder, a founder of PayPal, First Investor in Facebook, um, and, uh, is a billionaire. Um, so, I joined the Seasteading Institute full-time this year, um, and, and I'm now president. Uh, but I've been volunteering, uh, for them since, uh, since the, the beginning, since it was founded in 2000. Okay. How did you get involved or, or interested in this idea? It sounds like you moved around a lot and probably saw how governments operated in, in various places. Was that a motivating factor? Did you do a lot of reading in, you know, political philosophy, or was it more practical, or was it both? Or how, how did you get into this? Yeah, it was. It was probably 
from those two angles. Uh, I, I, I studied philosophy in, in uh, university. Uh, it's, uh, I was reading a lot of, of blogs online from various political views. And at the same time, I was seeing the, the ways that these different societies worked. Uh, and, and seeing this, I liked parts of, of, of many of them, but I always felt that much more was possible. Um, I, I especially came at it from the libertarian angle, though I'd like to emphasize that the C-Sitting Institute is apolitical. We, we don't want to impose any one kind of government on, on everyone. Uh, rather, we would like people to have the government that most closely matches uh, what, they would, what they would like to have. Sometimes people uh, use it as being made of the term, because it's all consensual and it's about, yeah, okay, guilty. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, the other thing is that I've spent many years arguing and, and campaigning occasionally for uh, various libertarian causes or classical liberal causes, because it's a classical liberal party in New Zealand, and seeing that not much progress can be made, uh, I don't conversation with Patrick Friedman about this once, about the good that Milton Friedman did, even in a democratic system, with, with all the resistance that the population will bring to, uh, bring things the way that democratic society used to go. Milton Friedman achieved a lot, but he represents about the best someone can achieve uh, in terms of shifting the po- uh, policies in a, a financial, sensible, and, and in general, libertarian way. Uh, we need to, we need an alternative system, uh, a system where we don't need to persuade 51% of our fellow citizens. Uh, instead, we just need a, a small group of committed people uh, with similar ideas who have similar ideas about what kind of society they'd like to live in, and then they can devote to it for themselves, and they don't need to impose it on everyone else. And then perhaps uh, they can demonstrate through, through their success or through their failure uh, what a society uh, can be. Okay, what are are, are the um, I, I think the kind of the hook to the story that I had uh, I had seen that people forwarded to me was that we have a, you know a billionaire Peter Thiel who is uh, funding you know cities out in the ocean. That was kind of the the way the the the, the news um, writers had it. Yeah, we've been misrepresented recently. Uh, Journalists love the story about this billionaire who's building his own nation um, that a lot of them try to portray as an evil. Right, right. Uh, or that it's his building his own little play, playgrounds. Um, we deeply appreciate the support of Peter Thiel, but Peter Thiel has like a lot going on. Right. He isn't very hands on with the institute. He donates to it. Um, he has uh, members from the Thiel Foundation on board. Uh, but. Uh, we are absolutely not like Peter Thiel's like our little island. Right. Uh, our vision is much grander than any one ideology, uh, and, and uh, we appreciate his support and his help in founding it and, and keeping it going. Right. And many other donors too. So what what are what are you guys working on right now? What are the steps toward you know you have a vision, and there to me there's there's the political angle. How do you organize uh, politically? Um, uh, the society in a seasteaded city or, or whatever you want to call it. I'll let you clue me in on the terminology, but there's also the, the the practical side. How do you build it? Who funds it? How do people get involved and commit to the possibility of moving out there? So lay out the steps on how uh, this would work as far as your strategic vision. The seasteading movement is bigger than the seasteading institutes. We, we pay, we play, part of the role in it. As non-profits, we uh, pursue research, most especially research that uh, the seasoning businesses uh, that exist already and will exist uh, won't pursue in the, the short term. Uh, so our engineering program, for example, includes uh, looking at floating breakwaters, which are uh, devices that are basically large walls that will enclose an area of, of ocean and keep the, the water inside calm. They're uh, expensive to build, but they drastically reduce the expense of building anything inside. Uh, breakwater technology is proven and, and used everywhere, but no one's ever needed to block off several square miles of, of water in the middle of the high seas before. So in their respect, there's some more research to be done. Um, that's our engineering program. We're most part of it. Uh, we also pursue uh, business research, most especially looking at business models uh, that these things are especially suited for, 
and uh, basically how to guide uh, for entrepreneurs and anything other anything else that businessmen would need to know to start CSIDs. And we have legal research looking into the many legal issues uh, facing CSIDs. So we people need to be aware of maritime law, international law, and uh, preferably some familiarity with uh, creating new legal systems because that's the whole point is to create new societies and, and new operating systems uh, for for societies. Uh, that's our research program. We also pursue uh, movement building, uh, basically awareness. Uh, so we, we get interviews like this, um, we present at conferences um, and uh, give speeches. We have a, a volunteering ambassadors program of, of dozens of people all around the world, um, Greece, Spain, South Africa, um, uh, a bunch of places. Uh, and they, they also uh, give speeches uh, at conferences, that kind of thing. So that's the role of the seasidings. One thing we don't do is actually build the seasidings ourselves. The first seasidings needs to be sustainable businesses, and uh, there are legal reasons why a non-profit can't use its donated funds to help anybody make actual money. Uh, so there are seasidings businesses. Uh, there, was, there was one that was launched earlier this year, uh, Blue Seat. It's founded by former staff members of the Seasidings Institute, and it's uh, project is to build a tech incubator off the coast of San Francisco. So this will be um, 12, 12 miles out because that's a, that's a boundary of territorial waters outside of which uh, laws of the country don't uh, apply. And uh, it will host people who can't get visas in Silicon Valley. Uh, people who would like to be in the same time zone as Silicon Valley, nearby so they can commute in on uh, business visas, but, um, but for legal reasons can't live in uh, Silicon Valley. So uh, so how to get from here to a, a world where there are hundreds of thousands or more of people living uh, in international waters? Well, the next step is to have more entrepreneurs, uh, more people starting businesses, uh, uh, more state businesses. And so I mentioned there's one that's two more that are uh, in works and not yet announced. Uh, and so this is this is the beginning. Uh, we've, we've done a few years of research and. Uh, the community of entrepreneurs is, is coming around to make it happen. Okay. And I, uh, you kind of anticipated one of my questions is, you know, if this is a, um, uh, you know, the Seasteading Institute is doing the education and the research, depending on the market to provide the nuts and bolts, you know, my question would have been, you know, where are they going to get the money, the investors, how is their business model? And that, that idea of the um, sort of the haven for the uh uh, the Silicon Valley people that can't get uh, visas or whatever, that seems to me a very practical sort of um, a fix to a problem that exists. Is that what sort of, um, you know, have they done market research or what are they looking at as far as, um, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the goals would be, you know, uh, a fairly, not self-sustaining because they would have to, you know, part of the idea I think of a, a seastead would be that you could have free trade with other other countries and other places, um, but a place where people would live, you know, normal people who wanted to escape the government uh, or, or, you know, just live their lifestyle the way they want under that system, is there, what are the economics of that? Uh, is uh, and I'm not a business guy at all, and I'm not an engineer at all, so those are the two things that kind of um, puzzle me the most about this. Is the And I do want to get into the political uh, organization thing of this because that's my uh, area of interest and expertise. But as far as the, you know, the money, how are they going to pay the bills and how are they going to the, make this stuff? Um, what, you know, will they start with these type of projects? Like the the Silicon Valley one, and then hopefully generate some more interest. Or what what do the business models seem to look like at this point? Well, ultimately, we see large societies of, of many thousands of people, uh, at least, uh, living on custom built platforms and pursuing a wide variety of businesses. But as the first step, uh, because we believe very much in incrementalism, because the saying the the word is relatively new. But the idea of creating uh, new countries out of nothing, uh, either on big ships or occasionally uh, people in the literally building islands uh, with uh, areas of the sea that are very shallow. Uh, people have attempted this before, and 
they tend to be dreamers who are dreaming big and uh, they want to start with a billion dollars. And you can't raise that kind of money um, and you, you need to prove things incrementally and grow small first. So uh, the first seeds did are likely to be rich profiting cruise ships pursuing uh, probably one single business. But in the case of the tech incubator, the tech incubator itself is one business, but people on board will be pursuing a wide variety of businesses. Uh, they're talking about uh, a ship of about a thousand uh, of people plus crew, a few hundred crew probably, potentially. Uh, so, uh, yes, and you mentioned uh, trading. Um, absolutely, we, we expect these things to be trading. Can you get questions about uh, will you be self-sufficient, how we get food? We'll get food the same way you would buy or any city will buy food, uh, will buy food. And, and it really is a city. Uh, it, it will do city things. The, the cost per square foot on board uh, a seaspit depends on the design, but our, our initial predictions are that it will be about the same as living in, inside uh, San Francisco or in New York. So expensive, not a million years play land expensive, but expensive. And so you'll need to be doing like high profit, high margin activities on board. Uh, and one thing you won't be doing is park. Uh, because that is one thing that's the best on that. Right. So yes, we'll, we'll import food and other things and export uh, a variety of services. Um, I can talk about business models. Or, uh, actually, I think I answered your question. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, uh, and I may ask from this point on, um, I'm going to ask a couple type of questions that, like I say, I'm very uh, interested in this idea and am a libertarian and all this, but there's, I, I have to kind of, um, ask a couple of questions from a, not confrontational, but like a few sort of, and I'm sure you guys have thought of, uh, the answers. Right, you guys have thought of the answers to some of these, so I'm not being rude or contentious, I'm just trying to, uh, to get to the heart of a couple of things. And the most obvious thing to me, the most obvious problem, is let's say the tech incubator, okay? It's sitting off, you know, 12.1 miles outside of San Francisco, Silicon Valley, whatever. You know, knowing what we know about governments, federal, state, local, they're going to see a bunch of cash sitting out there. They're going to see people, uh, you know, maybe, you know, heaven forbid, marijuana is legal on this boat, right? Um, there's people, economic activity going on. There is, uh, you know, potential terrorists on this boat. Uh, what, what's going to prevent, you know, San Francisco, uh, California and Jerry Brown, Barack Obama from, you know, sending the Navy out there and just, um, putting the kibosh on this or alternatively blocking access hassling people who want to trade with the mainland, communicate with the mainland. What makes you think governments are going to stand for this sort of activity? It is something we discuss a lot. Walking this fine line between staying under the radar and not doing anything that will uh, cause governments to, to want to attack or interfere uh, and, and getting large enough uh, to the, such that they can't. Or, or would otherwise have a reason not to. Um, so people talk, uh, you brought up marijuana. Um, Americans will travel to, say, Amsterdam um, and, and take drugs that aren't legal in America. And America lets them because you can't, like, attack Amsterdam. Um, but if Amsterdam were small and floating 12 miles off the coast of San Francisco, then yes, America probably would. So there are a bunch of things that you might want to do, um, or that some people might want to do, this uh, would bring the anger of, of USA upon you, or, or other governments. And so you, you certainly shouldn't be doing them anytime soon, if ever. Um, so if you can keep it to um, things that won't anger the US government perhaps too much, uh, like any kind of knowledge work would be something appropriate to see states, uh, somewhere you need a person uh, and a computer um, and some uh, telecommunications equipment. But you, you, put, you bring up that there's a bunch of cash out there, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, America or any other country may want to um, get some of that too. The international law is uh, on, on the the, uh, uh, the waters, the territorial waters of, of the sea is clear. Um, after 12 miles, you might as well be um, on land in terms of laws that apply to you. Then there's a 12 miles beyond that is a contiguous zone. The restricted set of laws apply, including fiscal, sanitary, and some others. The fiscal one is important one for this purpose. Um, 
believe you can see the text there, though that is uh, also for money laundering purposes. Um, and then there's uh, the 200 miles out from the coast is an exclusive economic zone. So the, the nearby country has jurisdiction or a claim, rather, over all the resources. That includes fish, oil, um, uh, any resources in the area. Um, and I mean, that's, that's uh, something these states can do, most especially agriculture, the farming of fish. Um, you, you would only want to do that uh, 200 miles out or, or more, or with um, some agreements with any of our country to do that. Right. Um, but you're asking about, uh, yeah, just what if there's cash? Well, there there is some precedent for this. Um, there, there are gambling shifts. Uh, there have been gambling shifts throughout history uh, where, where people would go aboard and gamble when gambling uh, was illegal or is illegal. Uh, a lot of cruise ships offer the service today. And so they, they uh, sometimes just, that, that's their purpose for existing. And it's their tolerance. Um, they, they trade with people on land. Um, obviously, a, a cruise ship uh, uses a lot of food and other resources they can trade. And so in that sense, they have these trading ties and, uh, and those friends on land. Um, but yes, overall, it's a fine line. Um, you don't want to be crushed by a, a government that's there are various things that you could do that would uh, draw their anger. Yeah, I would think at some point you would get to the point where it would be a PR problem for a government to, you know, invade or blockade, you know, a seastead that had, you know, say you have, you know, 5,000 people there and for a government to, you know, if they got to the point where they would say, oh, nothing comes in or out, that that point would be a PR crisis. So you're, I think, relying a little bit on, on things like that. But, again, I just, um, you know, I, I use an example. This is a, a stupid example, but I think an illustrative one. I just bought a house recently, and I, I was sitting in my house this summer. I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I was off this day in the middle of the day. And a an animal control agent from the county comes to my door, and he has a uh, this bogus story of oh does such and such live here and uh, I happen to know who owned this house for like 25 years before I lived here, and the name he gave was not even close to uh, that person's name who lived in this house, and I'm like no and. You know, when my dog barks a little bit when somebody comes to the door, and so he says, well, does that dog have a license? And basically I was like, you know, I don't have to answer any questions and this and that. And it ended up with him calling the police um, uh, of the local city that I am and basically to shake me down for, you know, a $30 dog license plus a $75 fine. Okay. And if a government is, and, and my theory was that the animal control people are looking at like the new water bill activations and then just going up to these houses with a bogus story, hoping they'll, you know, encounter a barking dog that they can then, uh, again, shake me down for basically a hundred bucks plus, you know, $30 every year in perpetuity. So, you know, if a government is going to go to that extent over that little amount of money, it just seems very tough for me to accept that, you know, the government that we're desperately trying to change, reform, reduce, uh, you know, as libertarians or people of similar persuasion, you know, we have this vision of freedom and why government is, you know, Im impairs uh, people's lives, impedes what we're trying to do. And, you know, I, as someone who's working within the political system, you know, it's very, uh, all the problems you brought up about trying to get 51% of the people to vote a certain way, that seems insurmountable in a lot of ways too, but it just seems to me that these guys, you know, the mentality the government has is they, you know, it really is, and not to use another HBO reference, but, you know, it's like the Sopranos. If it happens in their neighborhood or close to their neighborhood, they want to taste. And it's very hard for me to... Uh, again, you know, dealing with a lot of government people at the local level on up, that they would, and, and you know, just how in this country, especially, people sort of you know defer to government on things, and you know, of course, we need to have regulations, this and that, and it just seems like they would come up with so many excuses 
and justifications to impede, um, uh, to get their taste, to re- try and regulate what's going on. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure there are lots of smart people working on this, uh, but, I mean, that seems to me to be the biggest hurdle uh, for what you guys are trying to do. Am I, am I right? Or, um, yeah, you're not wrong. We, 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 we dream of complete autonomy, but um, the certainly don't expect it anytime soon. And um, but, I mean, I, take the example of the, the, the dog re- uh, regulation. As much as the, the, the government may be interested in, in uh, taking cash from a, a seat or controlling them in various ways, that detailed level um, of regulation and, and that kind of shakes down, it seems much less likely to be done 12, 24, 200 miles away from a, from a country than, than right inside a country. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and and to return to as you brought it up before, uh, media will be our savior, especially for the big things, uh, or, or it can be. So it'll be a PR disaster for a, a government to attack a bunch of photogenic people who have reality TV shows about them and uh, is this innovation hub. We are fortunate here at the CCA Institute that the media loves us. We, we, we get at first for uh, interviews and uh, TV segments and documentaries all the time. And uh, there's no reason that the kind of coverage diminish as CCA uh, starts existing in the real world. Uh, that will only increase. And it's an amazing story, a fantastic story. And um, it's not going to be something a government can uh, take down without everybody noticing. Right. So to some extent, yeah, uh, completely destroying uh, or sanctioning or blockading a seat uh, doesn't seem like a, a feasible option. Uh, lower level interference is something that we expect. Um, and that's uh, part of our legal research programs to see what is uh, likely uh, see what is currently legal and see what uh, options there might be for, for changing the law uh, and what risks we face in that regard. So speaking of laws, how on, okay, uh, let's say a business um, decides, um, you know, 20 years down the road they have enough, you know, investors and the technology and uh, there's a hypothetical city of, of 5,000 uh, people uh, out in, you know, a relatively safe zone of, of the ocean somewhere. They're, they're up. The media is aware of them. They're functioning. And how is the political organization in that city going to be handled? I would think that at the beginning, you know, the investors and the board of the, of the company that's, that's building it would, would um, have certain rules and agreements, and if you enter into an agreement by property there, you're, you know, you're agreeing to this arrangement. But what happens after that? A, n- a new problem comes up, and somebody says there ought to be a law. Um, somebody intentionally to, um, you know, to to throw a, a wrench into the works, you know, goes through all the motions, gets accepted into the city, and, and wants to be, you know, they want to do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, what happens when somebody has a, um, you know, somebody commits murder on one of these places? Um, how, how do we deal with all that? And I know that I'm kind of familiar with a lot of, you know, anarcho-capitalist thought and stuff like that. And, I, you know, there are um, good solutions, uh, alternatives and possibilities for all this. But I would imagine the Seasteading Institute is, is researching and laying a, an intellectual framework for those type of eventuality. So how are things going to be organized politically and how are problems uh, would they be dealt with? Well, the Seasteading Institute, Institute takes no official position on almost any policies or area, in fact, the ways in which governments can be run. Okay. A lot of people want to create democracies um, and, and others won't. And as long as there is the right to exit, we, we think that's great. We would love to see much more experimentation. Uh, the um, the founding fathers of America did a great job um, 200 something years ago, um, but it was 200 something years ago. We've learned a lot since then um, in, in terms of sociology, and economics, and uh, public choice economics, uh, and, and many other things. Uh, and so the operating system that we've been working with um, doesn't need to be replicated on CCS. You mentioned uh, perhaps that it's run by a company, and I think that if uh, there's sufficient competition in this free market for governments, then yes, 
cure uh, rather than rather than a subject uh, could work out really well. Uh, I, I get better service from say Apple or Starbucks than I do from the government. So um, what happens when there's a murder? Well, uh, that depends on the rules of the society. Uh, it, it's, it should be a society like like any other. I mean, there are, you, you mentioned five thousand. I would assume probably expect there to be bigger societies than that um, in twenty years. But there are, there's already like bigger than the smallest society in the world. Uh, I think Micronesia is two thousand. I could be way off on that. Um, point is, uh, there are there are only laws for for stuff like murder, and if, if a new problem comes up, then it'll be solved um, either the same way it is in regular countries, if it's a democracy or something similar, or if it's something interesting like a futarchy, uh, which is something suggested by economist Robin Hanson, um, or if it's an anarcho-capitalist. Um, states, uh, I'd love to uh, for some people to try that. Then, um, if I understand it correctly, they kind of think it's handled by competing protection agencies. Right. Um, so yes, let they uh, let there be diversity. Uh, let let's experiment and see what works. Right. Uh, and handle these problems as they come up. Instead of having these, these same problems hounding us for for years or decades or centuries as they as they do these things. So if you want to form a theocratic seastead. And you're not stealing from anybody, and you're not uh, forcing anybody to stay. Uh, you can have a theocratic seastead. Yeah, it's easy to imagine the, um, the the most horrible times of government. Since there will be an increase in diversity, um, and there will be probably some societies that we would find repugnant. But there already are. This is uh, we're not alone here in America. Uh, on planet Earth, there are plenty of societies that, that we find repugnant. And people can't leave them. Seasteading is the, is the solution to these problems much more than it is the cause. Uh, and if people want to have a theocratic government or, or something else, um, really there's no business of mine as long as people are allowed to leave. What, um, and, and this, uh, speaking personally, if you could write your own ticket, uh, what sort of seastead would you like to be part of? Personally, not representing the Institute, but, uh, do you have an opinion on that that you can share or? Personally, I would go for some kind of libertarian seasteads, whether it's minarchy or perhaps anarcho-capitalism. It's, uh, not, well, I would love to be able to evaluate them before I, before I go, uh, join one. Or perhaps I'll find one myself. But, right. Uh, yeah, somewhere in that zone, that libertarian zone. Are there any people involved in this movement that we might be surprised, types of people or individuals or, or anything like that that we might be surprised? Because again, you know, coming from a libertarian perspective, I, I see it as a small L libertarian type movement for, you know, the libertarian reason of, you know, competing governments and, and a, a, another alternative possibility of freedom. But are there people interested in this for totally different reasons uh, that may surprise us? Yeah, the, um, the media portrays this as a libertarian thing, probably because they really love the Peter Thiel angle. Uh, and also because it is true, a lot, we have a, a lot of support from libertarians, uh, and uh, uh, many people at the Institute, not all, but many are libertarians. But uh, there, we, we also have interest from uh, environmentalists who like the idea of having a little carbon footprint, uh, from uh, particularly uh, people who are socially liberal, uh, who are especially dissatisfied with uh, that aspect of America, um, or perhaps don't like funding wars. And we get uh, interest from the futurist community in general. We aren't so especially interested in the, the ideological stuff, but uh, really love the idea of, of cities on the ocean. That's uh, one of the next big things. Uh, I think that would be really cool. Um, so that's, I mean, it's, there are conservatives too. It's, uh, sea is a common cause of many ideologies. Okay. If you want uh, a different society from what you've got, you can go get it uh, if we work together. Uh, and in that, in that way, the conservatives, liberals, and libertarians can work together to make these things happen. And we don't need to impose our views on each other anymore. Are there, um, I, I'm not very well read in the science fiction genre, but I would think that some of these ideas have probably been explored there. Are there, you know, a book or two that is, um, that are talked about, referred to, Inspirational to to this type of uh, uh, to this movement. Currently, nothing uh, super connected. Uh, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson does feature um, uh, a precious society on the ocean in a, in a giant raft, and so that comes up a lot. And David Grimm um, is currently working on a novel that, that involves sea scaling. Um, and I think there's one other that slips my mind that comes up. Right. Uh, 
That's David Brin, B-R-I-N. Yes. Yeah, yeah I've heard of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of. Uh, yeah, I've heard of him. Um, yeah, okay, I'll keep an eye out for that. What? Um, uh, I always like to to get to know our, you know, my guest here uh, just a little bit. Um, what, you know, what line of work are you in? What do you do with your spare time? Um, and why, you know, why do you think this is a, um, you know, living with, you know, whatever lifestyle you live, why, why dedicate it to this sort of uh, project? So what, what type of guy are you, first of all? Well, I, um, before I was working with these things, you know, I was a tech entrepreneur, um, especially in Taiwan in the last few years. Um, my spare time, I played the piano. Um, and read, uh, and exercise. Um, but, uh, yeah, what, what, what? What kind of piano do you play? Yeah, I'm mostly classical, um, and a little jazz. Okay. Yeah, with my, uh, my friends, my families. What, uh, any favorite jazz pianos? Uh, Gershwin, uh, is my, my favorite, uh, jazz composer. Um, but, uh, mostly, uh, most of it's classical, Chopin, um, like some uh, Douglas Lilburn at the moment, which is a New Zealand composer. Um, like his, yeah. uh, what I was going to say, what moves me to, to, to make these things happen is this uh, frustration with the, the way societies are. And like, it seems that there's so much potential uh, squandered, uh, potential on social levels and, and on individual levels. We, we run into these uh, incredibly frustrating uh, things that, uh, so frequently. You know, your, your dog um, story, uh, the uh, drug troubles with it, uh, coming in and out across borders, um, uh, right down to the city councils, like parking meters, for example. I just about parking to today. Right. Through how Apple were designed parking meters, or, or any profit-seeking corporation that, that cared about its reputation, cared about keeping its customers happy, uh, would not design parking the way, well, actually any of the parking, uh, or take traffic congestion. Uh, it's a it's a problem that, uh, that a lot of companies would solve. In fact, like take traffic condition on the internet. It was a problem in the 90s, uh, and there was a financial incentive to solve it, and now we have fast mobile internet. And we still have actual physical traffic congestion. Now, okay, maybe they're not comparable problems, but the, the point is that uh, the, the incentive structure for governments doesn't work uh, very well to, to solve these problems, to create incentives to solve these problems. And that is why interactions with governments are, are often so frustrating. And we, we, we look at things that like border control, and right? we say that these are flaws. But if you look at, say, uh, I bought a, a MacBook a few months ago, and the entire experience from walking into the store and interacting with the clerk and like taking the MacBook in its bag and taking it out of the box and registering the internet and the way it's sold, all these things were so perfectly, uh, or perhaps not perfectly, but like very carefully uh, designed to be beautiful and right. to be pleasant for the user. This is like the opposite of the experience with uh, interacting with governments at every level. And so border control or immigration doesn't need to just not be flawed. It could be beautiful. And it could actually be enjoyable. And uh, if societies could compete with each other and had these incentives, then they could be. They, they would be. And there's nothing more important, no more important industry than getting government right. It supports all the rest. It's a, it's a platform. Um, and like, we, we all have these problems with government. We just want to fix them. But I suspect that there is vastly more potential than than we than we think. If it were 1985 and we were inventing the internet, you would be pretty excited about its potential. But you would never predict the millions of applications the internet has, the millions of websites and web apps and, and things that aren't on, on the web itself, like peer-to-peer -peer networking uh, and, and Skype, as we are doing right now for this interview. The uh, the potential for for governments to be better and to be a better platform upon which everything else rests uh, is vast. And I'm so excited to see what people will do with it, uh, to see what people can do when they just have the opportunity. Right, you're right. And that's the thing, the beautiful thing about, you know, the market. You mentioned Apple. I mean, it is, you know, I used to be uh, sort of anti-Apple until I finally got tired of my PC a few years ago and, investigated Apple, and you're right, every experience I've had with them, as far as buying things, you mentioned the boxes that it comes in, how you interact with them, how you buy stuff through iTunes, you know, it's not perfect, there's a couple little things I would change here and there, but you're right, 
they've attracted so many people in a voluntary way to switch up what they're doing and and commit uh and to buy expensive things um all by persuasion a better product uh standing out in the marketplace and not forcing anybody to do anything and that you're right that's the beauty of the market is usually if something is really messed up there is a you know there's a restriction in the market if there's a famine it's not because it didn't rain last month it's Right, it's 99% of the time it's a uh, political problem, and politics is the use of uh, use of force to achieve certain ends. And and you know, one thing people uh, it's a it's a cliche for you know libertarians, but you may not be interested in government, but government's interested in you. And I think that's why the seasteading thing is a um, is an attractive thing, you're right, because we don't know where it could go. And if it does succeed, and there's no reason to, to say why it couldn't, other than people using force and uh, intimidation to stop it, you know, there are a lot of great uh, p- uh, potential outcomes that we can't even imagine. So uh, one thing I wanted to uh, talk about, um, I always also like to get uh, recommendations uh, from my guests as far as books, blogs, news sources, people to follow, um, not just regarding your own um, uh, involvement with seasteading, but uh, what are you reading these days? Uh, what do you find uh, valuable as far as information and entertainment in the uh, printed or, or online um, uh, uh, spheres? One book I really like is A Thousand Stations. Uh, I think it's thefoundationstuff.blogspot.com, um, and uh, it, it, what it focuses is on. Um, oh, sorry, thefoundationstuff.com. Um, it's called Lay the Foundations Blue, and its focus is on competitive governments and the diversity of governments. So the goals of the authors are uh, somewhat similar to the, to the seat setting institutes, but they're they're not focused on seat setting itself. There's another way to achieve this to some extent, and that is through charter cities, uh, the uh, concept being pushed by economist Paul Romer is hitting this, and um, there's actually another institute, institute called the, the Free Cities Institute, which is where uh, governments in um, very poor countries uh, in the developing world um, can section off an area of their territory to be run by uh, people from outside, perhaps a different country or at least a different organization, and um, uh, we're running under its own laws. Um, uh, so consider the, how this actually occurred in Hong Kong, um, and how Hong Kong differs from the rest of China, uh, because the British ran it for a long time. It's a difficult thing to make happen because governments are very reluctant to give up their territory, usually. But it's actually happening, uh, now in Honduras. They've just passed a bunch of laws, uh, to set up, uh, 12 cities, I think it is. Um, and so to a limited extent, you can, you can achieve some of the, get- the gains of these These cities won't have uh, full autonomy, uh, but they do have a lot of control over uh, laws, and uh, I'm very excited to see what happens there. So, Let a Thousand Nations Bloom is um, one blog that covers that kind of topic. Uh, an economics blog I like is EconLog. The, the site is econlog.econlive.org. It's a blog that's associated with the larger econlive.org site. That's uh, uh, three writers, I think, all from George Mason University. Ryan Kaplan, Arnold Sling, and David Henderson. And they, um, they're economists, and um, Arnold Sling in particular is interested in um, the idea of uh, multiple governments in the same area, uh, overlapping jurisdictions. He doesn't write about that so much anymore. Their, their interests change from um, government place to place. But um, that is something that I would love to see implemented as well on lands, but probably not possible. But think this could absolutely do this at, at the same time. Your, the organization that provides your police force doesn't need to be the same organization that provides your health care or sewerage or your fire protection. Um, so you, you, could, you could divide governments into these modules um, and have these services provided by whoever is the best at doing this. Another uh, blog I follow is uh, overcomingbias.com by um, uh, Robin Hansen and occasionally there's other contributors. Robin Hansen is another economist at George Mason University. Uh, he's interested in... Um, a lot of things. Um, most especially um, 
human bias, uh, cognitive biases that, that lead us astray, uh, interested in futurism, interested in prediction markets, uh, he's particularly famous for that, and on a system of government that is in part based on prediction markets called Futaki. Uh, very briefly, people will vote on uh, what outcomes they would like to achieve, but then bet on what policies are most likely to achieve them. Uh, and in this way, we avoid the cognitive bias of Believing a certain thing is the, the best way to achieve something when um, when it's very easy and cheap and perhaps satisfying to have that belief and then vote on it because on some level you understand that your vote doesn't matter. It's one of 100 million votes. Um, and Futaki uh, could solve that problem. I don't know whether it works, um, but I've been creating the platform upon which uh, people can, can try this kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, anything else uh, you'd like to mention? Um, mention the contact info for the Seasteading Institute and, and how people uh, can get in touch with you, all that. The Seasteading Institute website is seasteading.org. That's S-E-A-S-T-E-A-D-I-N-G.org. Um, if you'd like to uh, contribute to the Seasteading Institute, uh, there's a lot of ways you can do this. Uh, you can become a volunteer ambassador uh, and do interviews, uh, speeches, uh, if you do a fantastic job, we'll be flying you to conferences uh, and other events to present. Uh, you can, of course, donate to us. We would love that. The Teal Foundation, Peter Teal, will, um, will match donations up to $500,000 this year. So if you don't, donate before December uh, 30th, before the end of the year, uh, your donation will be, will be matched in doubles. Uh, Tax-wise, what sort of organization are you? Oh, we are a uh, 501-3C. So, okay. Yes. They are. Yes. Great, great. That's good. Uh, that's one uh, <laughs> one little advantage we still have before they take that away. Um, but uh, no, it's been great. Michael Keenan, president of the Seasteading Institute, uh, has been my guest. I really appreciate you coming by, and uh, maybe here in a few months or a year, I'll call you back up and we can talk about um, about new developments. That would be great. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, thanks, Michael. This has been Declared, the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Ohio. This program is paid for by the Libertarian Party of Ohio, not authorized or endorsed by any candidate or candidate's committee. 2586 Tiller Lane, Suite 2K, Columbus, Ohio, 43231-2265. Call toll-free 888-371-2965. And once again, reach your host Aaron at news at lpo.org.